Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we head to Shanghai to speak with a woman who spent more than two weeks confined to one of the city's COVID isolation centers as China's financial capital, population 26 million, remains in complete lockdown as it struggles to contain an outbreak of COVID-19. We listened to biologist and author David Gaskell about his book, Sounds Wild and Broken, all about nature's sonic landscape, why it's so important to us, and why it's under threat. To mark World Parkinson's Day, we learn more about living with what is the fastest-growing neurological disorder on Earth, affecting more than 100,000 Canadians and 10 million people worldwide. But first, the fight for France's presidency is down to two familiar rivals, incumbent Emmanuel Macron and far-right party leader Marine Le Pen. It is shaping up to be a very close race, and we look at what impact a Le Pen victory could have on France, Europe, and the war in Ukraine. We begin tonight, though, in France. Uh, it's down to just two finalists now in the presidential race. There was a runoff yesterday involving 12 candidates. That how it, that's how it works there. The final two candidates then fight it out for the top job. Current President Emmanuel Macron was in the lead yesterday over far-right nationalist and uh, National Rally Party leader Marine Le Pen. She is his only remaining rival for that top job. It is a rematch of five years ago when Macron won easily to become that country's youngest ever president. But much has changed since then, and so it appears has Le Pen's odds of winning. Macron is still the favorite to win, rising in the polls. As a wartime president, he's been boosted by his diplomatic efforts with Putin. But his critics have accused him of spending too much time focusing on the crisis in Ukraine and not enough time on his campaign at home. So both candidates are back on the campaign trail today. And as President Macron said, the next two weeks will be decisive. So you're asking yourself, why do I care about French politics? Here's why you should care about this one. A win by Le Pen could shake France up in many ways. Amongst other things, NATO and European unity remains crucial in the fight to support Ukraine against Russia's invasion. Mr. Macron has strongly backed European Union sanctions on Russia, while Le Pen is worried about their effect on French living standards. Macron is also a firm supporter of NATO and a close and of close collaboration among the EU's 27 members. A winner will be decided on on April 24th. That's in less than two weeks. Joining me now with more is Kurt Hubner. He's a professor of political science and the Jean Monnet Chair for European Integration and Global Political Economy, rather, at the University of British Columbia. Uh, thank you so much for being here tonight, Kurt. Good evening, Ben. This was, this turned into, in the last few weeks, a surprisingly closely watched race. Uh, how did the first round results shape up uh, as far as the surge of Marine Le Pen goes. Yeah, I mean, it's not really a big surprise. Uh, Marine Le Pen uh, was uh, ascending in the last couple of weeks. The polls were indicating that it uh, would be pretty close, even the first round. Um, it, and she, she, she fulfilled those kind of expectations. She did better than uh, 2017. And uh, Macron also did it better than expected, but still, uh, the huge difference is, uh, from my uh, view, that the pool of voters that is now available for the second round looks much better for Marine Le Pen than for Macron, because uh, she also not only can now 
dig into her own water potential, but also in the one of Eric Zemmour, the even more far-right uh, candidate. And then there's a number third uh, guy, Nicolas Dupont-Aignan, who also got only 2.1%, but he's also the very far-right side. So if you add it up, then the pool for uh, Le Pen is pretty big. And this is concerning. So this is legitimately unlike uh, 2017 when Macron, I think, had 63% of the vote. This is legitimately a two-horse race this time. I mean, a real race. Uh, definitely. Also, uh, you know, you have to see uh, that um, the far left uh, candidate, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, also won 22%. And immediately after the, the first round, he was stating uh, that uh, he would recommend his voters not to vote for Marine Le Pen. But it was not uh, like things happened in the past when this kind of dam against the far right was being built. And this was the, the, the strategy for all other candidates in the very past over the many, many years. Uh, this dam is no longer working because uh, it was not a, an active support uh, of Macron. And this means the pool maybe for, uh, for uh, Macron may be divided uh, smaller. And this will make the second round so very close. I suppose for a Canadian audience who may not be familiar, I think people might know the Le Pen name. It has been around now for decades in French politics. But who exactly is Marine Le Pen? And how much would a win by her be uh, unprecedented to some extent in modern European politics, at least for a major uh, EU nation? Yeah, but the Le Pen family is uh, very famous uh, in France, but also beyond France. Her father actually was founding the first really close to, I would say, fascist uh, party, uh, very, very far right, with a lot of also uh, anti-Jewish uh, elements. Uh, it has all those kind of connotations that made him to this neo-fascist uh, representative. Uh, Marine Le Pen uh, actually separated from her uh, father, uh, but still her party uh, also underwent a couple of transformations, even with different names for National. Now, uh, uh, then she gave after the defeat in 2017, he gave the party a new name, but the party is the same, only a new name. So there's all this kind of detoxification uh, strategies on her side. And uh, uh, even though she was a bit softer in words, I think so. If you look at the program and the programmatic kind of statements over the last uh, couple of years, uh, then this would be an enormous break uh, for French polit politics, but also on a global scale. And then obviously, in particular, for the European Union, where France, particularly after uh, Brexit, is a very, very strong actor. And uh, what's really Macron played all his cards on the European level uh, without Macron, with a different kind of uh, France, this would have huge negative repercussions for the unity uh, of uh, the, Euro the European Union. As I mentioned off the, at the outset, for a Canadian audience who may be asking themselves, well, what, why do I really care who the president of France is? Uh, considering how much attention we've been paying to the war in Ukraine, uh, Marine Le Pen's links, or at least sympathies with the Kremlin, seem to be relatively well documented. This could be, uh, without without exaggerating, obviously, but this could throw a real wrench into the kind of European and NATO unity we've seen vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine for the last uh, 50 days or so. 
Yeah, I mean, she was uh, in the campaign criticizing Putin in, in very uh, strong words. But this is part of the campaign uh, politics, I, I would uh, say. You are totally right. I mean, um, uh, until the Russian invasion to Ukraine, the recent one, not, oh, sorry, not talking about, not talking about uh, the, uh, the, the Crimea and all those kind of things, um, she was very close to Putin, actually mentioned a couple of times that uh, her program would uh, be pretty close to what Putin has accomplished in, in Russia. Uh, also, uh, those little things that uh, in order to finance her campaign, she got those kind of credits from Russian banks. And uh, so it's a very strong relationship. And indeed, even with uh, now the critique to the Russian invasion to Ukraine, there's no doubt about it that uh, Le Pen made uh, uh, it clear that she would not uh, be supportive for all those strong measures now and even to intensify them with the argument, this was also a part of her campaign, uh, living costs, that the uh, situation for French uh, citizens would be much more complicated uh, and so on and so on. And, but this was the justification for probably how she would uh, respond and act on the European level if she would become president. I read one analysis that said a Le Pen win would be a, the biggest victory for Vladimir Putin since this invasion began. There is no doubt about it. I mean, uh, uh, and it's not only uh, uh, Marine Le Pen. Think about uh, only a week ago, she was the, one of the first uh, uh, calling up uh, Viktor uh, Orban in Hungary for his uh, election victory. There's a kind of common front. She was very active in the last couple of years to build inside also the European Parliament, but beyond a kind of far right-wing alliance of uh, like right, uh, like-minded parties. So, uh, and the, all of them uh, have a lot of things common, but one thing that is, they have common is also much more friendlier towards Russia and Putin. And uh, so this would really uh, be very difficult for the European Union to continue their relatively high level of uh, unity when it comes to sanction and all those kind of uh, uh, policies uh, and tools being used uh, in regards to Russia. So it would be a, a, a past change. I'm speaking with Kurt Hubner, Professor of Political Science and the Jean Monnet Chair for European Integration and Global Political Economy at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about the French presidential race, which looks to be a very tight one between incumbent Emmanuel Macron uh, and far-right leader Marine Le Pen. We've been discussing the implications of a Le Pen win on, amongst other things, uh, the unity that we've seen in NATO, the unity we've seen in the European Union, more or less, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the invasion of Ukraine. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the broader implications of a Le Pen win, as well as uh, the security situation right now in Ukraine. Don't go away. We're speaking with David George Haskell. He's a writer and biologist. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, explores the story of sound on Earth, looks at the diversif diversification and emergence of sound and the loss of the world's sounds. I wanted to talk to you a bit about this fascinating uh, book that you wrote in 20, an earlier book that you, where you essentially observed a very small patch of land for a very, for a while, and then allowed you to see so much about uh, a much broader look <laughs> through that one little piece. What was the inspiration behind that? It's such a fascinating way of, of, of looking at something in such a, I mean, we could all essentially do that, right? We could all take mm -hmm. a little piece of land and, and then observe it for a while and see what we learned. Yeah. And my hope for the book is to inspire people to do that, whether you're living in a city or out in the countryside or wherever you are, through close 
and particularly repeated attention to one spot, you can go deep into the stories of that particular place. And, and in fact, I've done this with, with some, some trees say in New York City and in Denver, Colorado, where, where I returned again and again to a particular tree. And my second book, The Songs of Trees, was about that. But you know, coming back to the, the inspiration for this was partly I just wanted to go to the forest and without an agenda for a change. You know, as a teacher and as a scientist, I'm always bringing questions and lesson plans and things to the forest. And I seldom... I felt like I seldom walked into the forest just with open senses, without any expectation of this is what I'm going to see. This is what I'm going to think about now. So I picked this little patch of forest. It's a place I'd never seen before. I just wandered on January the 1st through the woods and found a flat rock. And then the area in front, you know, flat so that I could sit on it with some comfort. The area in front of that, just an area the size of a small dining room table, became my focus for observations through the year where I could open my senses to the place. And then the second motivation was to try through that process of opening my senses to the forest to try and learn a little bit more through direct experience rather than just reading stuff in textbooks or in scientific articles. In a, in a way, I was asking the forest to give me, you know, renew my sense of curiosity and in a way, give me a reading list to go to the library. Because, you know, I love reading books and about things and learning stuff. But here I wanted the forest to say, oh, yeah, you saw this ant or a caterpillar or a leaf or you heard this sound. Go and find out what that was and, and, and excavate some of the stories that are behind it. And then, you know, the book is trying to share both the stories and the experience of, the ob- of observation. You did have one section of that where you sort of you where you're always sort of in wonderment at some of what is existing in front of you. And one of them is about resisting cold, which it turns out, as you point out so pointedly, humans are terrible at. We are. Yeah. I mean, without technological aids, we're we're in we're in trouble. And you know, and so I went to the forest and just looking at the chickadees, right? And the the titmice, small, very common birds and thinking about their life in, in the forest. And this was on a day when it was a pretty good wind chill. I think it was down around zero or, or something like zero Fahrenheit um, or, or close to it. And, I, you know, I was really feeling it through my coat and my scarf. And I, I just, well, I'm going to take all these clothes off and see what happens, you know, which is, of course, high school students to think that's very, all very amusing. As, I, as you get older, getting naked isn't quite so interesting anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, on a cold day, uh, I found that I could last a minute or two at most before my fingers started to go so numb they weren't working and my body was sort of beyond shivering. So there were all those bodily manifestations. But then, then the thing that happened was my mind, in the back of my mind, there was this growing sense of alarm that this is a very, very, not just anxiety, but some sort of deep dread that this is a deeply problematic situation we're in here. And so you know, I put my clothes back on and then, you know, got back home and, and warmed up and that there, were, there was no problem with it. But then it, the reflection is I, within two minutes, I was getting into this very bad state. These little chickadees that are a fraction of the size and the weight of me make it through the forest all through the winter. And of course, chickadees, this was in Tennessee, which is a pretty mild winter compared to most places. Boreal chickadees that are way up there in, in, in the North Woods have an even, even bigger challenge. And all they have to fuel them 
They don't have a supermarket, of course. They just find little spider eggs and 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 uh, you know, pupae of caterpillars and, and, and things like that to feed this little furnace that keeps them going all the way through the winter. And so even though rationally I can understand as a scientist, well, they've got insulation and and they feed themselves a certain number of calories a day. And, and you know, some of them don't make it about half of the, certainly the young chickadees die every winter. Mm. So I, I knew all that, but after this experience, I felt it in my bones. What a crazy, crazy life cycle that they have. And I understood myself different. We're tropical creatures that have only recently, even cultures that have lived, say, in very cold areas for thousands of years, in terms of evolution, that's a blink of the eye. That for most of human evolution, all human beings and all of our ancestors lived in the tropics or the subtropics. And our bodies are still that. And so our clothes and our houses and all that tech sewing technology is all about recreating. It's basically a subtropical environment underneath the coat. David Haskell, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Great pleasure to be with you. Well, one of the sounds you may hear in Shanghai these days, that city of 26 million people, one of the biggest cities in the world, is the sound of exasperation. Uh, a COVID lockdown has been going on there for weeks now. And despite the fact they recorded a record number of COVID-19 cases today, 25,000 apparently, they are starting to ease some of the restrictions somewhere. But really, it has been full lockdown now for a very long time for very many people. And when I say lockdown, I mean lockdown, like you cannot leave your house. And that's caused quite a few problems when it comes to things like, how do you eat? Um, because when you have 26 million people in a city, uh, invariably things are going to break down a little bit. So on social media, lots of complaints from residents in Shanghai about just not having enough to eat, not having enough to drink, and so on and so forth. Uh, and there is exasperation there. Of course, China's zero COVID policy mandates that these sorts of lockdowns take place when there are cases. So they've been testing absolutely everyone a lot. Um, let's have a listen quickly to what it's, what some of the more unhappy folks in Shanghai have been sounding like uh, recently. That was just from a, that was from a few nights ago. That was a video posted online of residents in Shanghai angry about, uh, about the restrictions or at least the impact of the restrictions that have been in place now for a long time. Well, joining me now from Shanghai is Jane Polabuko. She's an international marketing, marketing manager at Kenjian Music. Uh, that's her full-time job. These days she's a Shanghai resident as well. So lots to talk about there and originally from Ukraine. So I imagine also keeping a very close eye on world events there. Uh, so lots on your mind these days, Jane. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me tonight, though. Hello, and thank you for hearing out my story. Yes, absolutely. What has it been like? Because obviously I'm restricted to watching things on social media, so it's hard to really tell exactly what's going on. And Shanghai is such a, I mean, I've been there. It's such a massive place. What has it been like for you? How long have you been in lockdown? And what's the day look like now? Um, so I think it's important to mention that my lockdown is a bit different from the rest of the Shanghai citizens. I am right now in the quarantine center for asymptomatic COVID cases. Oh, wow. um, okay. So, um, so I'm, I've been here 16 days already and um, basically my, the, the whole arrangement and my life is a bit different from people who are, who are like exactly in the, like Shanghai in being locked down in their houses. I'm, right. I'm like on the lockdown of this quarantine center with, a lot, uh, I guess, around 4,000 people uh, in here. 
with no shower and like very, very basic facilities that we have here. So that would be, I mean, let's, Jane, so I, I, that would mm-hmm. be even worse. Uh, so I, I understand that if you test and you test positive and you have symptoms, they, you, you go off to one place. If you test positive, like in your case, and you're asymptomatic, you mm-hmm. go to one of these centers. I'd only read about these centers. So 16 days. Yes. Wow. What's it been like? Um, not, not, the, not the best experience of my life, definitely. Um, it's, um, so we're in this huge building, where, which is an exhibition center, which is normally used for trade shows. Um, everyone, each person has its own bed, and like we live in a kind of cubicles here. I, let's say I have a roommate uh, that will share that like, together one of the cubicles. Um, and uh, yeah, as I mentioned, 4,000 people around here. Um, this is like the moods here recently are very, um, people are very angry. People are annoyed. People are frustrated uh, because there's no clear communication with us. We don't really know what it takes to get out of here. How, like, how are we going to be qualified to be released out of this place? Official information says that we need only two negative tests in a row to get out of this place, but apparently this is, it does not work for our quarantine center. How often are you tested? Um, it depends. Um, so I've been here 16 days and I've done eight tests so far. Sometimes we would do tests like every every day. Sometimes there would be a break of one day or two days. So it's, it's random and there's no clear schedule of when and how we're going to do tests. They just basically tell us an hour in advance or just like um, in the beginning of the day, they do the, they, they tell us that we're going to do tests um, and that's it. So Jane, if we could go back in time a little bit, I, I think listeners mm-hmm. should know, I mean, I, I believe you went to university in, in Shanghai, so your Mandarin must be excellent, right? You can, <laughs> you can communicate well and, and, and so forth, but take me back a bit to when this all happened. Uh, how, how did you end up in the, in that center? Um, uh, that's correct. I do speak Chinese. Um, not sure if it's excellent or not because Mandarin is, is really a difficult language, but I use Chinese, uh, in the center, only Chinese to communicate to like my friends, I can say, I, I don't know how to relate to people who are in the same situation and medical stuff. Um, how I ended up here? Well, on it all started on 26th of March when I, I wasn't feeling well. I woke up with a like slight headache. So I went to the hospital to get some help to figure out, you know, if there is something wrong with me. But at that point, all of the hospitals of Shanghai were already closed down. So like, so we could only do COVID tests and that's it. We, cannot, we could not get any other help from the hospital. Uh, so I did a COVID test. And um, next day I was contacted by the hospital saying that my results are abnormal. Um, they need to reinvestigate the results. They need to retest me. So same day, um, hours later, hospital staff, medical staff came to my house again and did another test or two tests. I don't remember. It was like so many events happening. And uh, also the same day, um, another structure who is responsible for tracking down all of my close contacts and uh, basically everything that I've done uh, four days prior, pr- prior to 26th of March, 
So where did they go? Uh, with who did they eat? Um, I also had to provide the digital receipts of the places where I went, like where physically went or ate food or, um, or, or yeah, like bought, bought stuff there. So to make right. sure that there were no other close contacts. And then, so that all was on Sunday. And then next day, Monday, um, they told me that they're going to bring me here. But at that point, I could not figure out, like, it was a new Chinese word for me. I did not know this word, like, the Huang Tang, the basic cubicle hospital right. <laughs> where I am right now. Um, so, yeah, and they, they, they brought me here by ambulance. And that was it. That's the, that's the last time you've been out of that building. Uh, that's the last time I've been home. Yes. 28th yeah. of Are, March. Uh, I got here at 28th of March. Uh, can you go out? Can you go out during the day? Can you walk around at all? Is there an outdoor um, area for you? So the whole, the whole building is huge. It's very, very big. So we can at least walk around inside and yes, uh, they, they do open, um, the, uh, the gate, the main, and we can go outside. There is a obviously there is a fence, so there is a certain area that we cannot go out in order to prevent us escaping from this place. I guess. Um, uh, uh, so yeah, we, we we can enjoy fresh air. Obviously, you know, for an outsider, this sounds like a COVID jail, right? I mean, this maybe uh, a, yes. maybe a, min, a, min, a minimum security one, but still. It's. it's um, I agree with that comparison. Um. I want to ask you just a bit more about how you're eating. And also I want to ask you a bit about, I, I know you're from Ukraine originally, I believe it's Aparizia in, in, in sort of the East. Um, I, and I, I was going to ask you a bit about how you've been trying to keep in touch with your family or anyone back home, but let's do that quickly uh, after this. I'm back with Jane Polubotko. She is the international marketing manager at Kenjian Music in Shanghai. Uh, and originally from Ukraine, these days, uh, a resident at a COVID facility in Shanghai, where she's been for the past 16 days, ever since she was tested positive for COVID and was taken away by ambulance to this converted uh, convention center, uh, with with little indication of when exactly you're, you'll be able to... You sound remarkably upbeat, by the way, Jane, considering, but do you know when you're going to be able to go home? Um, well, thanks for that. Um <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't know. And uh, this is, I think this is the biggest struggle for all of us here, not only for me, but also for, for all, the, all of the Chinese people inside here, that no one can give us the, the clear understanding, clear protocol, clear, I don't know, procedures. There's no streamlined procedure for, to let us know who is qualified to leave. Like on the good side of that, there are people leaving, but I know that they have like four or five negative tests in a row. I have two, for example, at, at this point, um, only two tests. And uh, according, for example, to Shanghai uh, Health Sanitary Community, this is enough to leave this place. However, for some reason, we, um, yeah, they don't let us out. And there's so many, um, there is a lot of arguments, there is a lot of shouting. I can even say protests happening here around. People are very not satisfied um, and arguing with the medical staff in here. So who's there with you? Do you have like families? Do you have the elderly? Is it everybody who tested, who tested positive? Do you have, do you have like a whole neighborhood in there with you? Um, my boyfriend was tested positive as well. Uh, like, um, it, and it happened on the same day, on 26th of March. Uh, but we both got our, our COVID uh, at work, basically in the office. 
Right. I mean, in, in there with you now at the, at the center, the facility you're in, are there um, kids? Are there elderly? Yeah. Are they... Everybody. Everyone, literally, like all, all all types, all layers of society, all ages of you know men, women, all together in the same place. Kids, uh, elderly people, everyone. Is is there enough to eat and enough to enough to sort of get by? Uh, yeah, actually, food wise, we're doing all right. Um, they, we get our daily meals three times a day and I have to say food is like hourly so the problems here is pretty pretty okay I have nothing to complain about that I was going to ask you must have been by the 26th of March you must have already spent the better part of a month watching what was happening back home in Ukraine have you managed to speak to your family are you, be, are you keeping in touch I mean you must be sharing stories about what's happening here and there uh, yeah, of course, I'm I'm keeping always uh, myself updated with everything that is happening. And as you mentioned, uh, I'm from Zaporizhia. This is where my family is um, from, and this is where they are right now. We are in touch daily, you know, sometimes a few times a day. Hopefully Zaporizhia is uh, safe. Um, it was not invaded by Russians, and I hope it will not be. Zaporizhia right now is a kind of a hub, a first stop. Uh, for people who are being evacuated from Donetsk region, Zaporizhia region, uh, Kherson region. So it's like kind of the closest safe place to the, to the front line. That mustn't help your situation that you've been trapped in this facility for 16 days while trying to keep in touch with your family back home and the stress of that. Uh, I mean, yeah, it feels like I'm in between two wars right now. What will you, I mean, I guess, yes, you don't know when you're going to be able to get out. Have you managed to sort of continue to, how do you stay sane each day? Um, I, um, I mean, talking obviously to my family or to my friends helps. And in the beginning of this whole experience, I was at least able to read. So like, I, I read a book of, of uh, Auschwitz survival. That was, you know, actually pretty helpful. Um, and I do cross teaching. This is something that keeps me insane now. Keeps me sane now, um, just because it's uh, yeah. I don't have enough power to concentrate or to focus on reading anymore. And with like all this noise um, and this frustrating vibe coming from people, it, it's just um, it's just. I think this whole whole environment's not really healthy for even for our mental health here. Now, you would live through the whole zero COVID policy to begin with, but I understand in Shanghai in general, you probably didn't experience much of what we're seeing now. It certainly wasn't like, like Wuhan or what we saw in, in uh, uh, what we saw not long ago in Shenzhen. There really hadn't been much impact in Shanghai up until now. Absolutely. Yes, you're very right on that point. Um, do, do you have any, I mean, I guess since yeah, you don't I'm, know when you're getting it, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was just about to say that, that uh, you know, none of, I would say none of the Shanghai citizens would believe that something like this could happen to Shanghai. And I was, I was always so sure that, um, you know, they will do everything to, to keep Shanghai, to keep the face of Shanghai, the look of Shanghai, you know, great and, and, and healthy. And uh, they would do everything to prevent COVID here. But I don't know what went wrong. And, um, and yeah, here we are. Um, I guess any any plans for when you when you get out? I mean, I, I don't understand they were loosening up some of the restrictions 
today, uh, some of them. So I guess there is some light uh, at the end of the horizon, but you just don't know. Um, I'm trying to keep up with news because I obviously have, have friends and I know that some of my friends were able to at least get out of their houses and walk around the compound, so enjoy some fresh air. I'm not sure if they were able to leave the compound, but it seems like there's some, yeah, some some good improvements on that point in Shanghai. Well, Jane Polipoko, I thank you so much for your time. Uh, I wish you the best of luck. Hopefully, we can catch up when you get out, so we can talk about it in a, in an environment where you're comfortable. Uh, but uh, all the best from from us, and thank you so much for sharing uh, the story of what life is like inside one of Shanghai's quarantine centers for the asymptomatic. Right? You didn't even have symptoms, is that right? If I'm right? Uh, correct. I mean, I, I felt like very mild symptoms on 26th of March, and by the time I got here, I was, I would say, I felt perfectly fine, physically speaking. So I, I classify myself as a symptomatic case, no coughing, no sneezing, no fever. Right, but still there. Jane, thank you so much mm-hmm. for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Stay strong. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. We've been asking you tonight about what sound of nature you could not do without. Shelves in Swan Hills, Alberta says the great horned owls talk to each other late at night from about January to around now when the migrators return. I love them hoot hooting. The reason we asked you this, or I asked you this, is because it's not easy, it's easy not to notice the sounds of all the other creatures we share our space with. The sounds that we make, we make a lot of noise apparently, can drown them out, especially in the city. My next guest though says the air around us is vibrating with sonic lessons and we have to stop and listen. He also sounds an alarm about what's happening to our sonic landscapes. David George Haskell is a writer and biologist. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, explores the story of sound on earth, looking at the emergence, diversification, and loss of the world's sounds. And he joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be with you. This is a fascinating subject because I was, I was, you know, I live in a city um, in Victoria, which is actually quite a, quite a nice city in terms of the nature, but birds arrived on my balcony again the other day for the first time in many, many months. And you instantly notice that they're back. And I sort of looked through your book and was thinking about speaking with you and it, and it really reminded me of just how important the sounds of nature are and how quickly we forget about them sometimes. Yeah, and you know, birds are a great example because, of course, they're the great, the vocal species that we are most attuned to other than ourselves. Right? So, of course, we're attuned to human language and human, human music. Uh, but birds mostly are singing at the same frequencies and at, at tempos and with melodies that, that our ears can grasp, unlike, say, cicadas, or uh, you know dolphins out in in the ocean, which you know they have rich vocal repertoires and and indeed vocal cultures in the case of dolphins, and yet they're sort of beyond the can of our senses. So birds are a, a great connector, and sound is it passes through obstacles, and so it it tends to grab our attention in the way that some other senses don't, and yields information about the world that is not available to other senses which so the reason you know you hear the birds coming back from from your balcony or outside a house is because the 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 sound is is coming through and that's the reason why the birds are singing in the first place because many live in pretty dense habitats and sound is a great way of getting your voice and your presence and whatever you have to say out through dense vegetation or through dense uh or in the case of the oceans or night singing creatures, there's, there's very little light. And so sound is a great 
uh, alternative to visual communication there. You touched on something fascinating, uh, which was, I, and I had no idea that this was true, that, that birds, in fact, have dialects to some extent. Yeah, some bird species do. Birds are interesting because there are some species that just know their song from the get-go, even if they're born uh, with no ability to hear or some experimenter punctures their eardrum so they can't hear. They sing a perfect song, just as insects don't learn their songs. But then there are other birds, mostly song birds, that like sparrows and warblers, that, that learn their song by listening to their neighbors and, and their parents and those with wide geographic ranges often are broken into sub-dialects that are not gen mostly not genetic differences, but because the birds are, are learning the local lingo and the local accent, if you like. And so, so just as when I open my mouth, people can tell roughly where I'm from, and usually it's not from wherever I'm speaking. Uh, yeah, I've got sort of an English accent uh, that doesn't exactly sound like a Tennessee accent. Um, the, the same is true, say, with, with song sparrows or with white-crowned sparrows. When they start to sing, others can know, do, do you belong to this neighborhood? And, and more detailed than that, for some of them, do you belong to this particular patch of the neighborhood, this, this square mile, or are you from somewhere another few, few miles over? And so the, there's a, a very fine-grained structure that emerges through learning. So we're, we're not the only species that learns its, its vocalizations. Birds are in, in, that, uh, in that realm too. You pointed out that the sonic landscape that we live in um, even though it is changing, the sonic landscape we lived in, we live in now, took a very long time to develop because for a very long time to make noise was to invite unwanted attention. Yes, and that's still true now. I mean, when any creature that makes a sound, if there are any predators around, those predators can can find them. And so, to this day, it's it's things like frogs that can jump away, or flying insects that can fly away, or or birds that can get away, or. Uh, well-defended fish or fast-moving fast shrimp, things like that, that make sound. Slow-moving, defenseless creatures like salamanders and snails and worms and jellyfish tend to be silent. And if we look back into time, for hundreds of millions of years, as far as we can discern from the fossil record, there are no sound-making structures in the early oceans probably because it was such a risky thing to make a sound. It was only when things like wings and um, you know, jumping legs evolved that suddenly the risk of making a sound lowered a little bit. And so the potential for sonic communication that could then get to work and then and produce the amazing diversity of sounds that we now have around the world. One of the points of, of your latest book, though, is that we are losing some of that marvelous phantasmagoria of sound so to speak that the uh, and what the impact of that will be um how did you set about approaching that and, and what message were you trying to deliver well i think two messages one is that we live in a world of, of sonic wonders and that human music and human language are part of a much wider diversity of musics and languages and, and sonic nuance around the world. And there's great joy in opening one's ears to that and knowing some of the stories behind where did these sounds come from and how did they come to be. So that's one side of the, the story, the message of the book. The other side is that these riches are imperiled. They're imperiled in, in a few ways, one of which is when we clear habitats, 
we remove the sensory diversity of the world, say when a tropical forest is, is cleared or where we clear a prairie and, and, and plant wheat, we lose a lot of, of the species from that habitat. And so the rich variegations of, of species diversity and of sensory diversity are, are lost in that way. So it's that, in a way, that's a crisis of losing sound and, and some of the, the marvels of sonic diversity. On the other hand, some places we're pumping so much noise into the environment, human noise, that other species can't hear one another. In effect, it's so loud, and in the, particularly in the oceans, it's so loud that, that, that some creatures are actually physically damaged by the sound waves that are coming through the water. In other places, like in, in noisy cities or around industry on land, some species can adapt, say some birds just sing louder and at a higher pitch so they can kind of break through the traffic noise and the rumbly noises of industry, but others can't. Uh, and their, their means of communication from one to another are, are basically blocked, which means that their populations then suffer and dwindle and in, in some case, more extreme cases disappear. Then related to all this is what I think of as the crisis of inattention is that more and more we're becoming a species that listens just to our, our own voice, to the exclusion of the other voices of the living earth. And of course, we need to listen to one another, and we need to do a better job of listening to, to other humans. But alongside that, what would it mean if, if we humans, who are now the most powerful species on the planet, could do a little bit of a better job of actually listening to what other creatures are disclosing through their varied sounds? Might we be better kin might we be better members of the life community if we were listening and, and the great thing there is we get joy from this practice of listening you know it's great to identify a few frogs or, or hear the first singing birds in the spring these are sources of joy and wonder and they're also ways of sort of orienting us in, a, in our actions and our ethics so ethics isn't a dreary thing it's a joyful thing to connect with with these other species primates though as you've often said primates are our noisy creatures we tend to not we tend to ignore others we're not not ultimately but we're prone to wanting to listen to each other we are and you know and that is part of our nature as as primates if you go to uh, south america and listen to the monkeys in the they're always chattering away at one another or i've never been to africa to be around chimpanzees but but the films that, that i've seen and the books that i've read about their behaviors yeah they're vocal as well much can't have a as quite a sophisticated vocal language as as we do. We're we're odd in that we've taken a kind of bird-like way of communicating, like really vocally sophisticated, and combined primate culture. And so we're with with the with the bird monkeys, if if you like, because we're so vocal, and yet we retain a lot of the the cultural sophistication that our close relatives, the the, the chimpanzees and, and the gorillas and others have and so yeah it's part of our nature to do that but i would say it's also part of our nature to to listen so for 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 many people living in close relation to nature around around the world today and for all of our ancestors in the past the idea of not listening to other species was just insane because you weren't you couldn't put food on the table or know how how things were changing or when the storm was coming in if you were not paying attention. Now we have the luxury of just putting in the earbuds, not paying attention to anything, not smelling our 
breakfast or paying attention to the voices outside the window and so on, because we, you know, it's not vital to our survival. But until very recently, and in, indeed for many people still today, it is really vitally important to be tuned in to these rhythms and textures and all the rich information that's out there in the soundscapes of the living world. I'm speaking with David George Haskell. He's a writer and biologist. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, looks at the story of sound on Earth, celebrating the emergence of diversification and looking at the loss of the world's sounds. We'll also talk about his 2012 book, The Forest Unseen, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, a fascinating example of how you can take a very small piece of land and see a very long way uh, into the wonders of the Earth with such a small piece of land. We'll be back with that. We're speaking with David George Haskell. He's a writer and biologist. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, explores the story of sound on Earth, looks at the diversification and emergence of sound and the loss of the world's sounds. I wanted to talk to you a bit about this fascinating uh, book that you wrote in 2012, earlier book that you, where you essentially observed a very small patch of land for a very, for a while and then allowed you to see so much about uh, a much broader look <laughs> through that one little piece. What was the inspiration behind that? It's such a fascinating way of, of, of looking at something in such a, I mean, we could all essentially do that, right? We could all take mm-hmm. a little piece of land and, and then observe it for a while and see what we learned. Yeah. And my hope for the book is to inspire people to do that, whether you're living in a city or out in the countryside or wherever you are, through close and particularly repeated attention to one spot you can go deep into the stories of that particular place. And, and in fact, I've done this with, with some, some trees say in New York City and in Denver, Colorado, where, where I returned again and again to a particular tree. And my second book, The Songs of Trees, was about that. But you know, coming back to the, the inspiration for this was partly I just wanted to go to the forest and without an agenda for a change, you know, as a teacher and as a scientist, I'm always bringing questions and lesson plans and things to the forest. And I seldom, I felt like I seldom walked into the forest just with open senses, without any expectation of this is what I'm going to see. This is what I'm going to think about now. So I picked this little patch of forest. It's a place I'd never seen before. I just wandered on January the 1st through the woods and found a flat rock. And then the area in front, you know, flat so that I could sit on it with some comfort. The area in front of that, just an area the size of a small dining room table, became my focus for observations through the year where I could open my senses to the place. And then the second motivation was to try through that process of opening my senses to the forest to try and learn a little bit more through direct experience rather than just reading stuff in textbooks or in scientific articles. In a, in a way, I was asking the forest to give me, you know, renew my sense of curiosity and in a way, give me a reading list to go to the library. Cause you know, I love reading books and about things and learning stuff, but here I wanted the forest to say, Oh yeah, you saw this ant or caterpillar or a leaf, or you heard this sound go and find out what that was and, and, and excavate some of the stories that are behind it. And then, you know, the book is trying to share both the stories and the experience of the, of observation. You did have one section of that where you sort of, you where you're always sort of in wonderment at some of what is existing in front of you. And one of them is about resisting cold, which it turns out, as you point out, so pointedly humans are terrible at. We are. Yeah. You know, I mean, Without technological aids, we're we're in we're in trouble. And you know, and so I went to the forest and just looking at the chickadees, right, and the, and the titmice, small, very common birds. 
and thinking about their life in in the forest and this was on a day when it was a pretty good wind chill i think it was down around zero or, or something like zero fahrenheit um or, or close to it and I, you know i was really feeling it through my coat and my scarf and i, I just well i'm going to take all these clothes off and see what happens you know which is of course high school students i think that's very all very amusing as, as you get older, getting naked isn't quite so interesting anymore. <laughs> but uh, you know, on a cold day, uh, I found that I could last a minute or two at most before my fingers started to go so numb they weren't working and my body was sort of beyond shivering. So there were all those bodily manifestations. But then, then the thing that happened was my mind, in the back of my mind, there was this growing sense of alarm that this is a very, very, not just anxiety, but some sort of deep dread that this is a deeply problematic situation we're in here. And so, you know, I put my clothes back on and then, you know, got back home and, and warmed up and that there, were, there was no problem with it. But then it, the reflection is, I within two minutes, I was getting into this very bad state. These little chickadees that are a fraction of the size and the weight of me make it through the forest all through the winter. And of course, chickadees, this was in Tennessee, which is a pretty mild winter compared to most places. Boreal chickadees are the way up there in, in, in the North Woods have an even, even bigger challenge. And all they have to fuel them they don't have a supermarket, of course. They just find little spider eggs and 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 uh, you know, pupae of caterpillars and, and, and things like that to feed this little furnace that keeps them going all the way through the winter. And so even though rationally I can understand as a scientist, well, they've got insulation and and they feed themselves a certain number of calories a day. And and you know, some of them don't make it. About half of the certainly the young chickadees die every winter. Mm. So I, I knew all that, but after this experience, I felt it in my bones. What a crazy, crazy life cycle that they have. And I understood myself different. We're tropical creatures that have only recently, even cultures that have lived, say, in very cold areas for thousands of years, in terms of evolution, that's a blink of the eye. That for most of human evolution, all human beings and all of our ancestors lived in the tropics or the subtropics. And our bodies are still that. And so our clothes and our houses and all that tech sewing technology is all about recreating. It's basically a subtropical environment underneath the coat. David Haskell, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Great pleasure to be with you. Well, when we think of Parkinson's disease, perhaps names such as Muhammad Ali or Michael J. Fox may come to mind. But in reality, 115,000 Canadians have been diagnosed with the neurological disorder, 10 million people around the world. That number having doubled in just 25 years, it's expected to double again by 2040. In fact, it is the fastest growing neurological disorder on the planet. And it does not discriminate by gender, sex, ethnicity, age, or geography. Up to 10% of people with Parkinson's are diagnosed in their 40s or younger, and there is no cure. Well, today is World Parkinson's Day, a time to raise awareness of Parkinson's disease and promote greater understanding of the condition and how it can affect people. A new documentary today called The Long Road to Hope, Ending Parkinson's, has been released. Here's a short excerpt of the trailer, and the male voice you'll hear at the end is Larry Gifford, and he, I'm fortunate enough to say, is my next guest. I would say get better soon 
and I will help you find a medicine soon so you can feel better. My children kind of don't know mom any different. My psychiatrist gave me some really good advice, which is basically like, your daughter doesn't know about this and she needs you to be her mom. That's your job right now is to be her mom. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know if I was gonna die. I didn't know if I was gonna be of any use to my industry anymore. Like, am I gonna get fired from my job? Like, how does that work? What happens now? Like, all of our plans that we had just seemed to like go poof. And joining me now with more on his diagnosis, the impact, and his ongoing fight to raise awareness about Parkinson's is Larry Gifford, National Director of Talk Radio here at Chorus, but perhaps more importantly today, the founder of PD Avengers, or the Global Alliance to End Parkinson's, and host of the When Life Gives You Parkinson's podcast. Larry, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Great to have you here. Uh, Great to be here, Ben. Thank you. I guess the, I mean, just listening to you describe the poof in that yeah. clip. Tell me a bit about, about that moment, because I think like all of us as men, I didn't go to the doctors in my thirties. didn't matter what was wrong with me. Um, I guess that, that, that too was, was similar in your case. You didn't know what was wrong until you found out until you were told. Well, yeah. I mean, I had been collecting symptoms for probably seven or eight years. Uh, I didn't know it. Um, I just thought I was getting old or I was out of shape. And so my, you know, it was harder to stretch out in the morning and it was, my, my, my gait was off. So I was walking kind of funky and I just thought maybe I had extra weight on and, you know, you just make excuses for things uh, and your body compensates for a lot of it without you knowing it. And so it wasn't until I had a tremor that my son noticed was spilling water while I was trying to hand it to him. And he said, Hey dad, well, why are you shaking so much? And I said, I don't know. And he said, shouldn't you go to the doctor? And yeah, I I was not really keen on doctors at that point. I now they're my best friends. (laughs) I have, I have a collection of doctors. (laughs) So, so you go to the doctors. Um, I I can't imagine, I am sure at, at, you know, in, in my early forties or we're about the same age, I would never have imagined that the words Parkinson's would ever be uttered. Well, no. And and frankly, when it happened, I didn't know what it meant. Like, I mean, I, you know, Muhammad Ali, you know, Michael J. Fox, but like, like I, I honestly, I, like most people, it's just like, well, it's like a trimmer, right? It's no, it's so much more than a trimmer. Um, it's a, a full body disease. Like they, they, they've been calling it a movement disorder for a long time. And, and that's beginning to change into a whole body disease because while there there are you know things that uh, you know, the the, do- the lack of dopamine uh, is causing motor issues within your body, so your brain doesn't talk to the rest of your body as quickly um, as it should. So like it starts usually on one side and can go over to the other side to have both sides, but usually it starts on one side where you're like for me my left side was was faster than my right side. So I couldn't coordinate things. I kept running into inanimate objects. I was couldn't throw a frisbee because I couldn't release it on time. I couldn't go bowling because I didn't. I, c- I couldn't get the rhythm down. Like all these things that we've been doing for years with my son, suddenly we I wasn't able to do it. Even typing or eating, my body, you know, without me realizing it, started doing everything with my left hand, and my right hand just didn't do anything. How do you, I mean, how do you come to terms with those changes? Well, it's scary uh, because then when I was diagnosed with Parkinson's and realized that it's a, you know, neurological disorder that's degenerative and progressive, which is, you know, you love those words. 
um, and there's no cure, um, you you begin to go. So so this is the best it gets, and it's downhill from here, and that's not really the case. It's not not linear that way. So you have good moments, you have bad moments. Like every day, like I can feel great. I can feel like I don't have Parkinson's. I can forget about it for a minute. It'll always come back and remind me. Uh, but it's it's because the medication is so up and down. Like for me, I take medication every two and a half hours, but it only lasts in my system. You know, depending on how much is absorbed in the last dose. Uh, uh, you know, maybe an hour forty five or two hours. So there's a half hour forty five minutes there where I'm like coming off my medicine, and that's when I get they call it being off. Um, and that's when you see people that are maybe. Uh, you've seen Michael J. Fox where he's kind of, you know, sort of jerking around and stuff. That's, that's not the disease. That's the lack of, it's the effects of dopamine, uh, the dopamine replacement, which is uh, uh, levodopa carbidopa. Right. And so the, the medication, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, it's, so it's called dyskinesia and, and I get that as well. Um, and, and, but the, you know, the medicine's 50 years old. So, we we really need to find some some new and 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 better treatments. I mean, it does a great job, but it's you know it's not you know for it being the gold standard. I can't imagine there's another disease out there that's still relying on a drug that they just you know started using 50 years ago. You've pointed this out today uh, elsewhere, but I didn't realize that a this was discovered 205 years ago, and b we still diagnose it the same way. Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Uh, Dr. Parkinson um, observed people walking and, and, and the way that they uh, tremored and the, you know, the way the rigidity in their arms and legs and, you know, sort of the frozen face, the facial features. And, um, and when I got diagnosed, it was, you know, they were observing me, they were having me walk up and down the hall and they were having, they were having me put my fingers, like my forefinger to my thumb to see if I could do that. And that's actually where I, I, I started crying during the exam. You don't do that in real life where you took, take your thumb and your forefinger and you see how fast you can tap them together. I have no reason to do that in everyday life. Well, my left hand was fine. I couldn't do it with my right hand even once. And it was just like, I, why can't I make my hand do that? Because your brain's telling you it can, right? Yeah, because I didn't have enough dopamine to relay the message. Because if you have dopamine is a happy drug, we know, but it, its other purpose, which is actually more important than releasing, you know, happy, you know, chemicals in your brain, is it's it's the what I call the oil to to run the messages through your body. You release dopamine, and then your brain can begin to talk to the different parts of your body for movement. And if you don't have any, or you have very little, uh, then you can't move which is why people end up what they call freezing, which is like middle of the street or they, I freeze at an airport going through the, the security because it's a tight space and there's a lot of people watching and I get anxious and then I just freeze. And then they're like trying to pull me across, which is the wrong way to approach it. I just need to sort of shift my thinking and like shuffle sideways or, you know, get out of it. But you, you, you like, I've, I've been there at security for like three to five minutes where I like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to just, I've got Parkinson's. And I just need a few minutes because I'm frozen right now. I guess you become, I mean, you almost by nature have to become an advocate because I realized even just reading up today, how little I knew about Parkinson's and I gather 
it's just one of those things. People don't know a lot about it yet. It it is remarkably I mean, common as a, it's, it, there's a lot of people out there with Parkinson's and people and very few people know much about it. Yeah. Isn't that strange? I mean, yeah, it was the fact that it's been around since, you know, 1817, uh, officially, I mean, it's, you can find cases, uh, beforehand, but it wasn't, uh, there wasn't documented, uh, by a journal until 1817. Um, and they, they've, they didn't discover if you ever saw the movie, um, uh, uh, the, with Robin Williams and it would, it was, um, Oh, not Patch Adams. No, no, the, no, no. Uh, it's I, the, it's the, yeah. He's actually, it's, um, uh, awakenings. awakenings. Right. And that's all about the discovery of Levodopa. Right. Okay. And it's a fascinating movie. Unfortunately, I watched it the day I was diagnosed, not knowing what it was. <laughs> really? Yes. I have to confess I've never seen it, but really? Yeah, um, no, no. It's I mean, it's all about these people that they put into a hospital in the 40s and 50s, 60s, where they, they were just comatose. And then once they got the drug in them, they were like new, like normal. Wow. But they didn't know how much to give. And and, and it's about the story of the doctor who, who gave them like 18 times the amount that, that was recommended. And that's what it was. So like... You know, for me, it takes, um, um, everybody's different. So that's the problem with Parkinson's as well as you can, there's no standard treatment. Like they start everybody off at one pill, but like, I'm a big guy and, you know, depending on, uh, you know, what your diet is and how much you exercise and, you know, with the absorption rate in your body. And, uh, like I'm up to now 16 pills a day, uh, just of the Levodoa and then I take another six to eight of other drugs to counter other symptoms every day. Larry, I really want to ask about all the work you've done since, uh, and how you, you, you've sort of taken this, this diagnosis head on and started this podcast and joined PD Avengers and done all this work. And, and we'll just take a, a very brief, uh, step away. And, uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more about, about all the work you've done to try to raise your awareness, specifically today on World Parkinson's Day. We'll be back. We're speaking with David George Haskell. He's a writer and biologist. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, explores the story of sound on Earth, looks at the diversification and emergence of sound and the loss of the world's sounds. I wanted to talk to you a bit about this fascinating uh, book that you wrote in 2012, an earlier book that you, where you essentially observed a very small patch of land for a very, for a while, and then allowed you to see so much about uh, a much broader look through that one little piece. What was the inspiration behind that? It's such a fascinating way of, of, of looking at something in such a, I mean, we could all essentially do that, right? We could all take a little piece of land and, and then observe it for a while and see what we learned. Yeah. And my hope for the book is to inspire people to do that, whether you're living in a city or out in the countryside or wherever you are, through close and particularly repeated attention to one spot you can go deep into the stories of that particular place. And, and in fact, I've done this with, with some, some trees say in New York City and in Denver, Colorado, where, where I returned again and again to a particular tree. And my second book, The Songs of Trees, was about that. But you know, coming back to the, the inspiration for this was partly I just wanted to go 
to the forest and without an agenda for a change, you know, as a teacher and as a scientist, I'm always bringing questions and lesson plans and things to the forest. And I seldom, I felt like I seldom walked into the forest just with open senses without any expectation of this is what I'm going to see. This is what I'm going to think about now. So I picked this little patch of forest. It's a place I'd never seen before. I just wandered on January the 1st through the woods and found a flat rock. And then the area in front, you know, flat so that I could sit on it with some comfort. The area in front of that, just an area the size of a small dining room table, became my focus for observations through the year where I could open my senses to the place. And then the second motivation was to try through that process of opening my senses to the forest to try and learn a little bit more through direct experience rather than just reading stuff in textbooks or in scientific articles. In a, in a way, I was asking the forest to give me, you know, renew my sense of curiosity and in a way, give me a reading list to go to the library. Cause you know, I love reading books and about things and learning stuff, but here I wanted the forest to say, Oh yeah, you saw this ant or a caterpillar or a leaf, or you heard this sound go and find out what that was and, and, and excavate some of the stories that are behind it. And then, you know, the book is trying to share both the stories and the experience of the, of observation. You did have one section of that where you sort of, you where you're always sort of in wonderment at some of what is existing in front of you. And one of them is about resisting cold, which it turns out, as you point out, so pointedly humans are terrible at. We are. Yeah. You know, I mean, Without technological aids, we're we're in we're in trouble. And you know, and so I went to the forest and just looking at the chickadees, right, and the, and the titmice, small, very common birds, and thinking about their life in in the forest. And this was on a day when it was a pretty good wind chill. I think it was down around zero or, or something like zero Fahrenheit, um, or, or close to it. And I, you know, I was really feeling it through my coat and my scarf. And I, I just, well, I'm going to take all these clothes off and see what happens. You know, which is, of course, high school students think that's very all very amusing. As as you get older, getting naked isn't quite so interesting anymore. <laughs> but you know, on a cold day, uh, I found that I could last a minute or two at most before my fingers started to go so numb they weren't working, and my body was sort of beyond shivering. So there were all those bodily manifestations, but then then the thing that happened was my mind, in the back of my mind, there was this growing sense of alarm, that this is a very, very, not just anxiety, but some sort of deep dread, that this is a deeply problematic situation we're in here. And so you know, I put my clothes back on and then you know, got back home and, and warmed up, and there, were, there was no problem with it. But then I, the reflection is, I within two minutes, I was getting into this very bad state. These little chickadees that are a fraction of the size and the weight of me make it through the forest all through the winter. And of course, chickadees, this was in Tennessee, which is a pretty mild winter compared to most places. Boreal chickadees that are way up there in, in, in the North Woods have an even, even bigger challenge. And all they have to fuel them they don't have a supermarket, of course. They just find little spider eggs and 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 uh, you know, pupae of caterpillars and, and, and things like that to feed this little furnace that keeps them going all the way through the winter. And so even though rationally I can understand as a scientist, well, they've got insulation and and they feed themselves a certain number of calories a day. And and you know, some of them don't make it. About half of the certainly the young chickadees die every winter. Mm. So I, I knew all that, but 
after this experience, I felt it in my bones. What a crazy, crazy life cycle that they have. And I understood myself different. We're tropical creatures that have only recently, even cultures that have lived, say, in very cold areas for thousands of years, in terms of evolution, that's a blink of the eye. That for most of human evolution, all human beings and all of our ancestors lived in the tropics or the subtropics. And our bodies are still that. And so our clothes and our houses and all that tech sewing technology is all about recreating a, basically a subtropical environment underneath the coat. David Haskell, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Great pleasure to be with you. Ever wondered what it's like to repossess an airplane? We'll meet someone who's been doing it for a living for decades after this. I'm happy to say that Larry Gifford has agreed to stay with us for the rest of the hour to talk a bit more about Parkinson's disease on today, World Parkinson's Day. Uh, Larry, of course, is the National Director of Talk Radio here at Chorus, but uh, also the founder of PD Avengers, or the Global Alliance to End Parkinson's. He has Parkinson's, and he's the host of When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a podcast. Uh, before the in the first half hour, we were talking a lot about the just the impact of the diagnosis, uh, the impact on one's body. Um, you know, as as Larry has called it, a frenemy for life. There is no cure to Parkinson's. I wanted to talk a bit more, if, if we can, at this point, about just some of the stuff you've been doing uh, to try to raise awareness, especially in the build up to this day. Uh, you took sure. part in a new documentary, and I was wondering what that was like to sort of share your story and also to see other people telling their stories. Because one thing that struck me is just how different each person's story is, despite the fact that obviously uh, you're living with the same diagnosis. Yeah, the, the documentary uh, showcases 12 people with Parkinson's, and it, it really is uh, a, a perfect depiction of how we can all have Parkinson's, but we all have a different path. Um, and no one Parkin no nobody's Parkinson's is like anybody else. I mean, Michael J. Fox is famous for saying, if you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one person with Parkinson's. Um, and, and which is difficult because there's other other diseases that you can get. And, you know, everybody has something. And, and uh, this just happens to be what I'm dealing with. But like the difference between this and, and most other diseases is there's a there's a, a roadmap or a, a, a we, we have treatment options or we we can go down this road. Or we can go down this road. And here's what you should expect. There's there's no rhyme or reason if I, I'm going to be, a, you know, if I'm going to progress slow or fast, if I'm going to have, you know, no symptoms or some symptoms or a ton of symptoms. If it's going to be severe early, if it's going to be severe late or, or not at all, um, everybody is so different. And that's the frustrating part is you don't know what your, what your journey looks like. And you don't know, should I, should I hurry and travel now because I'm not going to be able to later or should I, you know, it's, it, there's all these questions that come up and it, there's no answer. You just have to live your best life in the moment. Would you, I, get, I gather we, we used to think of Parkinson's as sort of an old person's disease. You know, you would picture sort of elderly people. I remember even, I think, from in like theater class a million years ago, someone pretending to, you know, someone acting as if they had Parkinson's. And it was always very old. Uh, and now we've realized that it's not at all um, an elderly, necessarily an elderly person. In fact, it's much more indiscriminate than we ever thought it was. Well, and a lot of that has to do with how they conduct research. You know, right. uh, we're finding that, you know, white, old white men are willing to participate in research in the middle of the day when 
the scientific offices are open. <laughs> and right. so they've, they've not been, you know, treating, they've not been studying women and they've not been studying uh, people of color. And so now that they are, we're finding out that it, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are. I've got a friend that was diagnosed when they were seven years old. He's now 55. I mean, that's a long time been, to live with Parkinson's. That's a long time to live with Parkinson's. I was also surprised to read, and I, I didn't, I think you may have explained it to me at one point, but that there was still the same treatment other than maybe, I gather there's been some research on why exercise helps, uh, but right. the same so, treat, the same medication. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So levodopa um, mm -hmm. is, is the standard gold, gold standard treatment. Um, and they've created several ways to um, deliver it to, to us. Uh, they keep inventing different ways to get it into our system faster, better, um, you know, more, more, you know, they change the coding or they make it an inhaler or they, you know, you, you, you know, even there's home, home remedies where if you need quick do, dose, you can chew it up and drink some orange juice and rub it into your cheek. And, you know, we all have our own tricks for, for trying to get it into our, you know, cross the blood brain barrier quicker. Um, but you know, it's, it's tough because the, the, the levodopa has to travel all the way to the lower intestine before it's absorbed and, and, and into the brain. Um, and so it, it's a long journey. And so you're not allowed to eat, you know, proteins, you know, a half hour or an hour before and not for two hours. Um, and so if you're taking pills every two and a half hours, that makes it challenge to find a time to eat proteins. Um, and, yeah. cause the proteins will fight for that little window to go through, uh, to the vagus nerve to cross the blood brain barrier. And so if it takes too long to, to get there, it will absorb in the stomach and it, it will do you no good. You called, you said earlier that before the current pandemic, it had been referred to as the next pandemic after the amount of time you've spent looking into it. Do we have a better understanding of why it, there hasn't been more attention paid to it considering the number of people who've been diagnosed with it and the severity of it? Well, I, there's, there's conventional wisdom that uh, there are a lot of people who will say, well, at least you got Parkinson's. You're not going to die from it. You'll die with it. Mm -hmm. um, and which is really not a, if you think about it, that means, oh, so I get 30, 40 years of progressive degeneration and trapped in my body. That sounds more pleasant than death. Um, it, but it is actually, it, it can kill you. There are, every country, you know, has statistics about the death rates. Every two and a half minutes in the world, somebody dies from Parkinson's. Now, um, and, and then you could also die because of complications of Parkinson's. Usually it has to do with swallowing because you have, that's an automatic function that we're typically used to doing that even, even I sometimes have trouble swallowing just like water or pills or, and then you, you, uh, sometimes you have trouble, uh, if you get sick, you, it's really easy for people with Parkinson's to, um, get, have it become pneumonia and go straight to your chest. And it, that's. Uh, a lot of people die from that, which is why COVID has been a real big, big, big um, issue for the Parkinson's community. Um, and, um, you know, it's, but it doesn't seem as dire as the others. And uh, I'm here to tell you that it, it is, it's dire because it affects so much in so many people. I mean, I, I can give you the numbers in the States off the top of my head for the financial impact, the burden. It's $56 billion a year 
uh, a Parkinson's burden on the government, and they only invest two hundred and seventy-five million dollars into research every year for it. Um, that that's way off balance, and we need to do a lot better job around the world, including Canada, in investing in research for Parkinson's and, and really trying to get that same um, collective uh, global action that we had with with COVID, where the governments reduced the red tape and the scientists and the research community worked together and the pharmaceutical companies worked with them. And we were able to, you know, really hit that head on uh, with, as a, as a global force. We need to do the same thing with Parkinson's and MS and ALS and all these other brain diseases. You did mention that, that, that despite the difficulties of the pandemic of, of COVID for people with Parkinson's, that it did at least inspire this idea that cures can be found if there is a will. Right. Like if, if they, they decided, you know, they wanted to end Parkinson's uh, from a federal standpoint or, or a global standpoint at the UN or the WHO, uh, then it will happen. Uh, now, I, I can tell you, I've been uh, part of a, a, a small panel of, of uh, on Parkinson's with the WHO, the World Health Organization. I, I wrote to them earlier this month and they wrote me back because they still don't officially recognize World Parkinson's Day, um, oh, and I, okay. I wanted, you know, I was asking them to, um, but they are next next month. They are adopting um, a new policy, uh, a ten year plan to address neurological uh, disease and the stigma that comes with it. And there are action items that are expected of every UN nation uh, over the course of the next ten years uh, to meet certain minimum standards for how we treat people with neurological disorders. That must feel like a victory. I mean, the WHO yeah, is not, not an organization. Huge. It's not an organization that moves fast, the WHO, generally. No, no. And so it's, and, and to even get a letter back was one thing. And then, you know, it's nice to, to know that that's, uh, that's moving forward. Uh, it was adopted in January. It'll be voted on and, and moved forward next month. Tell me a bit about today, because there's been a whole bunch of, there was some other stuff put forward for today, including a new symbol, the spark, uh, the lightning bolt, which I guess is supposed to mean dopamine, but it means many things, doesn't it? It, it sure, sure does. Yeah. We, we, as, as an organization, the PD Avengers works with uh, 90 plus other Parkinson's groups and organizations around the world from like 83 different countries. And we, we've been working with them over the course of the last eight to 10 months. And we also have a, a, a creative design firm out of Brooklyn uh, that has volunteered their time to work with us. We, we went through several iterations of different types of, of logos. We talked to the community about, you know, what in, inspires them. Uh, and we came down, we needed to come up with a universal logo that could, uh, without any words, convey uh, energy and uh, uh, momentum or urgency and movement forward. Um, and, Lightning is a universal symbol. Um, you know, you see it every day on your iPhone. Uh, there's a lightning bolt that says, oh, you need to charge your battery or your battery's charging. Um, and it's, it's uh, for us, it, it was inspired by dopamine and the, the you know, the sparks uh, that happen in your brain, um, the lightning field that the brain is. And then uh, it also, we want to spark conversation about Parkinson's. We want to spark a movement uh, to to you know g- get more research dollars to to have people pay attention and, and recognize that you know if it if it hasn't impacted you from like a friend or a family perspective yet it's only a matter of time 
the numbers would suggest with the doubling every 20 years or so that that obviously it's become a bigger and bigger almost of a, a pandemic as you mentioned earlier something that we would all have to face and at least learn how to to um to better understand it, at least to begin with i'm speaking with larry gifford he's the national director of talk radio here at chorus uh, but more importantly today the founder of pd avengers and the global alliance and parkinson's he himself has Parkinson's, and he's also the host of the When Life Gives You Parkinson's podcast, which I highly recommend. It's very informative if you want to know anything more about it. And to hear people's stories too, just very, uh, you know, the sort of day-to-day life of, of, of living with Parkinson's and what it means. Uh, after this, we'll, we'll talk a bit more just about what next for Larry and, uh, and just the satisfaction of raising awareness uh, about this and where this must go next for it to succeed. That's next. It's World Parkinson's Day today, and to mark it, we've been speaking with Larry Gifford. He's the National Director of Talk Radio here at Chorus Entertainment, uh, also the founder of PD Avengers, or the Global Alliance to End Parkinson's, and host of the When Life Gives You Parkinson's podcast. Larry, uh, it must have changed you over the years. Do you see the difference in the way you approach life now than than before? What what impact has it had in terms of how you just approach the day-to-day and, and how you think about things? I can't, I can't really imagine how much it would change. Um, well, someone. it's changed so much. Um, it, change, it, it continues to change because I'm constantly having to re, uh, reset what I'm able to do and not able to do. Like personally, the relationship with my wife, for instance, we've had to change everything after 22 years. I mean, we were great communicators. We were both communicators by trade and we, we could read each other's minds almost. And now I don't pick up on subtlety. So she'll say, Hey, the dishwasher needs emptied. And, and what I'll hear is the dishwasher needs emptied. Okay. She's asking me to unload the dishwasher, but I know that seems silly, but it's, I don't pick up on like just sort of half, asks and I don't pick up like there's a there's a disconnect in my brain uh, that doesn't know especially if I'm going off on my pills I I can't absorb it we actually have a rule that there's no open-ended questions after after five o'clock so uh, I I may not be doing well for you Ben so I apologize I apologize apologize in advance for the open-ended questions (laughs) I should have apologized 45 minutes ago but it's been it's been fascinating to know then um, also from a personal standpoint I live day to day um, I, I don't make, I, you know, I, I choose to have things into the future that I'm looking forward to, but I also know that they could get canceled depending on how I feel. I could wake up one day and just not, I could be, I could, I, I, I get very nervous in crowds now where I never did before. I don't drive anymore because of my, my reaction rates are, are, are far enough apart that I'm afraid that I'm going to, every time I do drive, I drive periodically just in my neighborhood Every time I drive a car, literally, somebody honks at me and I don't know why. So I'm like, I don't belong on the road. And then you feel like there's my own who I am, who Mm -hmm. just knowing who I am, um, I can I know what's declining. And people are like, Oh, you look great. Yeah, but on the inside, I feel like I'm 90. I feel like I'm in a foreign body. I it's like it doesn't fit, it hurts. It's tight. It's, you know, it, there's never a day that goes by where you're like, oh, yeah, I'm, I feel great. When you look with all the work you've done, do you feel like we're any closer now to a better place than we were when you were first diagnosed? Well, it's, it's hard. Science is really slow and really expensive. 
Um, and so it's, you know, there was there for a while there, it was like, we're five years away from a cure for the last 30 years. Um, I just looked on the Wikipedia page and still today, if you go on the Wikipedia page for Parkinson's, there's an illustration of Parkinson's disease by Richard, uh, William Richard Gowers that was first published in 1886. And of course it's of an old man crouched over shaking. Like if there's anybody listening that knows how to change a picture on Wikipedia, we got to get that down and get the updated. We have updated pictures. We've tried to do it. We don't know how to do it because uh, Wikipedia has so many, but this, this influences the everybody um, stuff like that. We need to change. We need to change how we talk about Parkinson's and how we, how we normalize uh, brain disorders from ALS to MS to, to Parkinson's and, and Alzheimer's because we're all dealing with one of those. I'm, I, I, everybody listening is dealing with one of those in their family right now, or at least a close friend um, because they're pervasive. And they're not, we've always thought, I think of Parkinson's as sort of an end of life disease and it's not. No, no. And there's different types of Parkinson's and they haven't really yeah. figured out a, a coding system yet, but like, you know, there's some people that don't, there's 30% of people with Parkinson's never have a tremor. A lot of people are diagnosed with Parkinson's through depression, which is a symptom, not a, not a reaction. Uh, anxiety, a symptom, not a reaction. Um, it, it could, I was diagnosed through my gait. Uh, so it, it, there's, there's lots of ways that people are, um, are, are seen. And so and because everybody's so different, like if your gait, if your main symptom is gait, you, you may have a, you know, more similar path to other people that have a gait issue than people that have the tremor issue or people who have, you know, um, extreme, uh, you know, bladder issues, you know, all the, all the automatic systems in your body become affected by this. Like I, I don't sleep at night in the same bedroom with my wife because I act out my dreams at night because my, my brain can't shut down my, uh, my body, like everybody else gets paralyzed when they sleep. So they don't act out their dreams. I I'm punching people in the middle of the night. And if she happens to be in the way of my movements and she's going to, you know, she could get hit or hurt. I've, I've fallen out of bed more than times than I can count. Because your brain is still, your body's yeah, still, still working. Yeah. Yeah. It thinks I'm in a fight. So I'm fighting. <laughs> And people with Parkinson's Larry, have extremely yeah. vivid, violent dreams. I, I again, there's so I've learned. I've learned so much, and I was look. I was researching this before, and I've learned more than I can tell you this evening. I, I guess I have about another minute. Uh, if people want to know more, where can they go find out information? Well, there's a couple of websites. Uh, first off, a uh, good partner of the podcast is Parkinson.ca, Parkinson Canada. Great resource, great people there. Uh, PD Avengers. Uh, anybody can be a PD Avenger. You don't have to have any connection to Parkinson's. You just have to not want Parkinson's to be around. Uh, we believe everybody has a superpower that they can bring to the table. Whatever you do well, uh, whatever comes natural to you, we could use your your effort. So, uh, and we don't raise money; we just raise awareness. So, uh, we we let the organizations raise the money and use that because they know how to best spend it. And then you can always go to worldparkinsonday.com. You can find the spark there and some really good information around Parkinson's disease. And of course, there's the When Life Gives You Parkinson's podcast that I, again, highly recommend. Larry Gifford, it has been 
fascinating to have you on. I know you've had a very long day raising awareness about World Parkinson's Day, but thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me and to, to let the, our audience know about uh, about Parkinson's today. Well, have me back, Ben. I'll, I'm happy to hang out anytime. <laughs> anytime. Thanks so much, Larry. Good night. Take care.